Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. In today's episode, Convention of State's President Mark Meckler speaks to a group of supporters in Chicago, Illinois. Okay, I want to make sure, can everybody hear me in the back? Okay. So, you know, there's a debate in my family. I've been married 26 years, and I say that I have a very loud voice, and my wife says I have a very big mouth. So, I'll let you guys, you guys can give me a verdict when we're done today. Um, so, I want to just kind of give you a brief background on me and why I'm here, how I came to be here today. Mostly what I want to do today is answer a bunch of questions, and that's always the most productive part, because you guys are the smartest people in the room. You'll ask the best questions, and we can cover a lot of ground that way. You know, my background uh, professionally is I'm a lawyer. Don't hold that against me, please. Uh, I'm, a rec I'm a recovering lawyer. I haven't practiced law for a long time. Uh, and in my practice originally, the beginning of my practice was business and real estate. About halfway through my career in the early 90s, I'm dating myself here, but in the early 90s, the early days of the internet, I became one of the first lawyers who was expert on the law in the internet. And so I had this kind of perfect life as I saw it. I lived in the country in Northern California. I had two young kids at the time and I was teaching them to ride horses. I was coaching soccer and I was working from home. I was just absolutely incredible. I took them to school and picked them up every day, helped them with their homework, everything a dad could want. Uh, and then the Tea Party movement happened. And I saw Rick Santelli do his now famous rant from uh, right here, right on the floor of the Chicago Merck and he called for a new American Tea Party. And I was inspired by that. I held one of the first protests that was in Sacramento, California. 150 people showed up. It kind of blew my mind that there were 150 people as crazy as me in California that came out, right? You know, California, just like here, is a very blue state. And so you, you get this perspective that maybe there's nobody else out there like you. And that was one of the most inspiring things to me about the beginning of the Tea Party movement is how many people there were out there that thought like me, what we now know as the silent majority in America. Uh, after the very first protest, uh, there were not a lot of people know about it. There were 35 tea parties around the country. 39,000 people came out. That's February 27th of 09. A group of us got together and decided we should do this again. If we were that successful, one week's notice, maybe we could have 75 or 80 tea parties around the country and maybe we could stir some stuff up. And so we proposed to do them on April 15th. Seems like everybody's mad at the government already on April 15th. So we proposed tax day tea party. Anybody ever hear of the tax day tea parties? Yeah. So 850 of them happened. It spiraled out of control. Ultimately for me, it took over my life. 1.2 million people came out on April 15th, 2009. By the way, most people don't know this. That's the largest single day multi-city protest in world history. Uh, it's pretty amazing that that happened. And out of that, then you get the 2010 elections. Uh, that was the biggest swing between parties since 1938. Anybody vote in that election? Yeah, thank you guys for making that happen. And I was so excited after those elections. I was heading up an organization called Tea Party Patriots. Ultimately we built that to 23 million members, 3,200 chapters. I was there the night of the elections in 2010. We had a huge party on Capitol Hill. I remember there were news cameras from all over the world. Everybody knew what was happening. I remember my daughter gave a speech on Japanese national television. Really incredible night. And I really thought that everything in Washington DC was going to change. 
And those guys came in and they got sworn in as the new class. And I was there, by the way, for their swearing in. And I'm not kidding, within three days, they were eaten by the swamp, most of them. And when I say three days, I'm not exaggerating. The lobbyists had their hooks in those guys so fast, it was unbelievable. The Potomac, which everybody thinks of as a swamp, somehow turned into a jacuzzi for all these guys, right? And we thought everything was gonna change and nothing changed. And I was incredibly frustrated by this. I had, at this point, dedicated my life to this. I had shut down my practice. Penny and I knew nothing, my wife and I knew nothing about running a nonprofit organization. Uh, nonprofit meant no money from our perspective, and we made no money, we had no salary, we spent all of our money. And we literally spent all the money we had ever saved helping to build up the Tea Party movement to the point of the edge of bankruptcy, literally. And the only, we had a donor that came in very last minute and saved us from literally from filing bankruptcy. And so I get to this point after 2010, 2011, 2012, and I realize nothing's changing. I've quit the practice of law. You know, I used to say all the time uh, that there is no amount of money in the world that could cause me to be on the road traveling away from my wife and my kids. And ultimately for no amount of money, I traveled away from my <laughs> wife and my kids. And it was so frustrating because we weren't actually accomplishing anything. And I would tell you that a lot of people who were engaged in the movement at that time, at my level, people who were building up organizations and maybe getting elected to office, they were really enamored with being in Washington, D.C. You know, at the time, I could go into D.C. and I could pick up the phone and I could have an appointment with John Boehner anytime I wanted. Anybody else in Congress that I wanted to have an appointment with. And I was not enamored with that. I'm not, I wasn't, I'm not impressed with John Boehner or Kevin McCarthy or any of these folks any more, actually less than I am with being with you guys. So to me, being in Washington DC was not a privilege, honestly, it was a burden. It was being away from my family. I didn't wanna be there, I was there because I felt called to be there to try to do something to save the country. And then by 2012, I realized I wasn't doing anything to save the country. Right? I was appearing on Fox News talking about how frustrated I was about everything and, and then I'd go home and these guys would do exactly the same thing they had always done. I remember being in Congress at some point and there was a huge debt ceiling fight going on. Anybody remember this thing called the debt ceiling, right? The debt ceiling, this thing where the Republicans are allegedly going to use the inability to borrow any more money to extract spending concessions. And I remember sitting in a congressman's office and watching all this debate going on on the floor, I was watching from the monitors in a congressman's office, and one of, and I was excited, I was like really intense, and one of the congressman staffers said, you know that there's already a deal, right? And I said, I, I, what, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, they're gonna debate until an hour after the deadline for the debt ceiling, but the deal's already been cut, they're gonna raise the debt ceiling, and." Everybody knows what's gonna happen and the Republicans really aren't gonna get anything out of it. And, and I was completely blown away by that. It was all a charade. It was literally kabuki theater being put on for the American people. And he told me, look, if the Democrats don't fight until the last minute, then their constituents will scream at them. If the Republicans don't fight until the last minute, their constituents will scream at them. But everybody knows we're gonna raise the debt ceiling, so it's already done. I was just so disheartened by that and by the idea that there was theater going on in Washington, D.C. being performed for all of us, right? So that we wouldn't be mad at them. So we would think our guys did the best they possibly could. But it wasn't true. It was all fake. And so I just felt like I wasn't really accomplishing anything. In 2012, 
I left the organization that I had founded, the Tea Party Patriots, and I intended, frankly, at that point to leave politics. And my attitude was, look, I, I came into politics to try to do something good, to do what little I could do to try and save the nation. I'm not accomplishing that. So why am I away from my kids and my wife and my family and, and the, the place and the home that I love? And the answer was, I didn't really have a good reason. And I was, got really blessed, to be honest with you. A guy who's one of my best friends now, his name's Tim Dunn. Uh, he's a West Texas oil guy. He's one of the donors. He's, he's an original founding board member of our organization. Came to me and he said, what are you gonna do? And I said, I don't know. I think I'm just gonna go back to practicing law. And he said, oh, you can't leave politics. And I said, yeah, I can leave politics. <laughs> and he said, no, you gotta stay. You're, you know, you're, you're too good at what you do. You're, you're pretty good on television and, and you haven't compromised your ethics. That was the main thing. And I said, yeah, I'm, I would never do that. And he said, well, then me and some other guys will help fund you to start a new organization. And I said, I have no idea what to do. And he said, well, that's okay, we don't either. And incredible to have somebody come to you and say that, like just start something and figure it out. And we did. The very first thing we did is we raised a million dollars to give away to grassroots groups on the ground. And this was super important to me because when I was in my time at Tea Party Patriots, almost no money went back to the grassroots on the ground. So I had friends all across the movement that were maybe renting churches on, on a Saturday evening and spending a hundred bucks a week to rent their local church to have Tea Party meetings. And so they're spending all this money out of their own pockets and nobody was helping them. And so I wanted to help them, so we did that. The second thing that we did, I think, proves my pedigree of being insane, because the second thing we did is I sued the IRS. Most people would, yeah, most people would say, you clapped, you're crazy too. <laughs> most people would say, that's crazy, and it was, but I had a lot of friends in the Tea Party movement that were being attacked by the IRS. They had filed for charitable registration status as five, what's called a 501c3 or c4 organizations, and the questionnaires they were getting was unbelievable. Things like, what, what are the content of the prayers that you say at your meetings? Hey, you know, we had Matthew up here just say a prayer. The IRS wanted to know what, that, what was the contents of that prayer. They wanted to know what books we were recommending people read. They wanted to know what was our donor list so they could go after people like you that were given five bucks at the door. And so it was really ugly time and nobody was doing anything about it. I was watching TV and I was watching these television lawyers, the fancy lawyers on Fox News, talk about how bad it was what was being done to the Tea Parties. And I was calling those people and saying, are you gonna sue or are you gonna do something? And their, their answer was, well, we don't know, we'll have to see. And so I finally got frustrated enough that I went to a law firm that I knew in St. Louis uh, and asked them if they would represent in a class action all these Tea Party people. And I went out and we raised the money to do it. It cost us four and a half million dollars to sue the IRS. Uh, we raised that money, that's hard money to raise because donors, you know, you like the idea of giving money to an organization suing the IRS? It's pretty, you know, you need crazy donors too. And so luckily we found the donors to do that over time and the IRS a year ago this December settled for three and a half million dollars that went to the plaintiff's class. I'm not aware of anybody, by the way, ever getting a big multi-million dollar settlement out of the IRS on anything else. So that was the second thing I did. The third thing was convention of states. And the way that that happened is I met somebody who is much, much smarter and much, much more accomplished than me, and that's a guy by the name of Mike Ferris. Now, most people wouldn't know Mike Ferris's name. Uh, anybody in here homeschool their kids or come from a homeschool family? That's most, most people know Mike. Mike is, I would describe him as the founder of the homeschool movement in America. Uh, back in the 70s, homeschooling was illegal in one way or another in all 50 states. Uh, and they didn't actually generally say, you're not allowed to homeschool your kids. They would do 
crazy things like they would say, if you want to homeschool your kids, you have to be a certified teacher in every subject matter area. Right? Like nobody can do that. Or they would say, you have to meet all the physical requirements that a school has for its physical location, which is impossible for somebody schooling their kids at home. So they just managed to take what is a fundamental right of each of ours, which is to school our own children, educate our kids in the way we see fit, and they had taken it away. And Mike Ferris said, that's just wrong. And Mike said, I'm gonna fix that problem. This is really an incredible thing. It's actually crazy. It's actually impossible what he set out to do because back then when Mike set out to do this and then there was no facts or there was no uh, cell phones and no internet. Imagine trying to build a national movement. High tech was a fax machine back then. <laughs> and he built a national movement and today because of Mike and a lot of other people that worked with him, there's a lot of people all around the country, a lot of great organizations joined hands and were created. And you can now, we think of homeschooling, we all know people who homeschool their kids, it seems normal to us. But we take that for granted, I think. So Mike blazed that path. And he came to me one day and he said, he was introduced to me by Tim Dunn, this guy I was telling you about. And he said, you know, are you happy with what you've accomplished in politics? And I said, no, I'm really frustrated and upset. And I feel like I've wasted years of my life. And he said, that's because you're approaching the incorrect problem. You think we have a personnel problem in Washington, DC. And I said, yeah, heck yeah, we do. And he said, well, maybe, but that's not the problem. The problem is actually a structure problem. We've broken the structure of our system of governance. And as, it doesn't matter what you put into a bad structure or a bad system, you're gonna get a bad result. And that's what we're getting right now. And he walked me through a bunch of the broken structures of our government, things we had done, the way we have exceeded the enumerated powers Right? So we, our government is a government of limited, enumerated federal powers. We've blown all those out. The Constitution has been blown up by the federal government and the courts. And he explained all this to me and he said, but there's a way to fix it. We can use Article 5 of the Constitution. And so Article 5 of the Constitution, for those of you who don't know, it provides the mechanism whereby we can propose amendments to our Constitution. You all know we've done it 27 times. There's two methods in Article 5 for proposing amendments to the Constitution. The very first, and the one we've used all 27 times, is when two-thirds of both houses of Congress propose an amendment, then it goes out to the people and the states for ratification by three-quarters of the states. And we've done that 27 times successfully. The second part of Article 5 says when two-thirds of states want to get together to propose amendments, and they make a call for that convention, then the states gather in convention, and then they propose amendments that go out for ratification the same way by three quarters of the states. We've never done that. And Mike told me that there's no way that the federal government is ever going to restrain itself. And so the people have to do it using the second method. And he started to educate me more and more about it. It took about an hour before I was just completely bought in. It made perfect sense to me. If you have a broken structure, you get a broken result. Send good people into a bad machine, you get bad stuff coming out of the back of that machine. It all made sense to me, and I started to dig into the history. The history is really interesting. In, on, you know, I, I'm a student of history. Anybody study history in here? More than since you were in school, probably? Yeah. Look, I went to school in Los Angeles, California. My history was bad. Let's just put it that way. Maybe Chicago, same thing, right? And so there's a lot of stuff I didn't learn. This is something I didn't learn. I didn't learn that September 15th is the most important day in American history. Then people say July 4th or other days like that, right? September 15th is the most important day in American history to me because it's my wife's birthday. That's number 26 years I've learned a few things. Second is because that's the day the second clause of Article 5 gets introduced into the Constitution. It happens like this. September 15th, 
the convention's almost over. It's going to be two more days and the convention is over and the Constitution gets signed. But what happens is Colonel George Mason from Virginia stands up, he addresses the assembly, and he says something like this. We have a fundamental problem with this document we've drafted that we've given Congress and the federal government the power and the authority to propose amendments, but we've not given the people acting through the states the same power. And then he asks a question, still an important question today. Are we so naive that we believe that a federal government that becomes a tyranny will propose amendments to restrain its own tyranny? Yeah, you know, I see some people shaking their heads, some people giggling about that. It's ridiculous. No tyranny in all of human history has ever restrained its own tyranny. Can you imagine a tyrannical government saying, you know, I think maybe we've overstepped a little, we have too much power, we ought to give some back to the people that we're tyrannizing, right? Never happened. I actually think the founders laughed at this point in convention. You know, we don't have video or anything like that, but we have Madison's notes, right? Madison's notes are really good and really uh, thorough. These guys debated everything, but at this point in the convention, the notes say, nin com, which means no comment in Latin. Not one person objected to what Mason was saying. Not one objection, not one comment, no debate. They debated how to debate, but they didn't debate this. And in fact, they then voted unanimously to put the second clause of Article 5 in there that gives all of us this power to restrain federal tyranny. So here we are, 243 years later. Raise your hand if you think the federal government has become tyrannical. Anybody? Yeah. You know, by the way, today, only 27% of American citizens say that the federal government has the consent of the governed. I want you to think about that. That's a terrifying statistic. The vast majority of people in this country believe that the federal government no longer has our consent, which is the very definition of a tyranny. They're governing us without our permission, which means they're not even governing us anymore. They are ruling over us. So we're frustrated by this. The founders knew that this time would come. And so that's what we're doing. We're using this gift that the founders gave us. It's 243 years later, we've never used it. I think we're a little late, but I think that's okay. Uh, we have not lost our country yet. And the question is, will we act? Let me describe to you kind of how the process works for those of you that are unfamiliar with it. Because we haven't used it ever before in history, it's not unusual that people wouldn't be familiar with it. Here's what the Article 5 says. It says that whenever two thirds of states shall call, and the way a call works is this, a state legislature has to pass what's called a resolution. It's a joint resolution in both houses of the legislature calling for a convention of states. And that convention has to be on a particular subject. How do we know it has to be on a particular subject? Because we've had over 400 applications in American history and we've never had a convention because we haven't had two thirds of the states call it on the same subject. So we have a long, historical record of this. And so when two thirds of states call, then the states gather in convention. Each state will send as many delegates as it wants, but we'll get one vote. How do we know it's only one vote? Well, we had 11 conventions before 1787. We've had approximately 30 interstate conventions since, and the states only vote one state, one vote, because it is called a convention of states, not a convention of delegates, not a convention of populations, not a proportional convention. It is a convention of sovereign entities being states. Each state gets one vote, but they can send as many delegates as they want. Each state legislature will choose the delegates however they decide to choose. Some people don't like this. Personally, I'm a federalist. I think it's awesome. I think every state should decide the way they want to send, send as many as they want to send, and know that they only get one vote. 
They get into convention. At convention, they will adopt a set of rules. You get a lot of questions about what will the rules be at convention. And we actually have a pretty good idea what the rules will be. Again, there have been 41 conventions roughly since prior to 1787. They've used virtually identical rule sets in all of them. We know we have the rule sets from almost all of them, and we can look at them and compare them. They're virtually identical across the centuries. Today, 70% of state legislatures use something called Mason's Rules. If you're not familiar with those, they're kind of like Robert's Rules of Order. Some of the legislatures actually use Robert's Rules, but about 70% use Mason's. So we believe likely that the convention will adopt a set of Mason's Rules. If you want to see what this looks like, we, held a, we hold a simulated convention a couple of years ago in Williamsburg. They used Mason's plus a couple specific rules for convention. In that convention, they'll probably break into committees a lot like a legislature. We have three subject matter areas in our resolution. One is anything that would impose fiscal restraints on the federal government. Those are restraints like a balanced budget amendment, like imposing spending caps or taxation caps, maybe tied to GDP or tied to population plus inflation. It's anything that would impose term limits, not just term limits for Congress, but term limits potentially for the federal judiciary, for federal officials like staffers. How about bureaucrats, right? They're not supposed to be there forever. And then anything that would impose what are called scope and jurisdictional limitations on the federal government. And to me, this is the heart of the matter. Our republic was designed where the federal government was supposed to have limited enumerated powers and the state powers were supposed to be unenumerated and expansive. And today we flipped that on its head. So when I say anything that would put scope and jurisdictional limitations on the federal government, it's essentially returning to the enumerated powers, right? So no, you may not be involved in education. No, you may not be involved in the environment. No, you may not be involved in energy. None of those things are in the Constitution. Those are a creation of the courts. And so we want to go back to something like the enumerated power. So in convention, they'll break into committees around those three subject matter areas. They'll debate proposed amendments. And if they can get 26 states to agree on any amendment, then they can pass that out of convention. Ultimately, that goes by a simple majority so ultimately, they'll have one or two or five or 10 amendments proposed that come out of convention, and then those go out to the states for ratification in the exact same way that we've ratified 27 other amendments. It takes three quarters of the states to ratify any amendment before it becomes part of the Constitution. I've been doing this for six and a half years. It is a long, slow road. I can tell you sometimes I'm very frustrated by that. I want it to happen yesterday. I wanted it to happen the first year that I started. I wanted it to happen when I had a little bit less gray hair. I'm starting to get gray in here from doing this. I want it to happen now. But the founders intended this to be a long, slow road. Literally, that's what they intended. If you read their writings, they did not want us to amend the Constitution willy-nilly. And they knew that society changes from year to year and decade to decade. And they wanted to make sure that we built a broad consensus across a period of years, across millions of people, across all the states, before we really got serious about changing the Constitution. And then they wanted that any of those proposals to go out and have to be ratified by three quarters of the states. It's a really high bar. So every time I get frustrated, or if you're a volunteer and you're engaged already and you get frustrated, remember, it's exactly how the founders intended it to be. I want to tell you a story from American history that, that will give you a sort of a picture of how I look at all this. You know, um, I study a lot of American history. You guys raise your hands, you guys do too. One of my favorite periods in American history is obviously the American Revolution. Like how did that happen? How did it come to be? There's some incredible stories. We know a lot of the stories. They're, they're sort of part of the American lexicon. 
Uh, we know the stories of Madison and we know the stories of Adams, Abigail Adams, Sam Adams. We know the story of Washington, the indispensable man. One of my favorites, we know Patrick Henry, who's such an incredible, amazing, eloquent speaker. You know, we know his give me liberty or give me death speech. We know all these stories. I don't think that's the real story of the American Revolution though. You know, when you have something like a revolution, a major historical event, there are thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that participate in the making of that story. We know only a handful of stories. So I think we don't get a real perspective. And I like to try to dig into history and find out what was going on with regular people at the time. You know, in the American Revolution, they estimate that about one third of the population actually supported the revolution, right? So it's two thirds either didn't, about a third didn't, and about a third were just neutral. So about, about a third of the population participated and there are a lot of regular people like you and me. And my favorite story from the revolution is about a guy by the name of Captain Levi Preston. Preston fought at one of the original battles at Lexington. And he was a farmer. Uh, he ultimately became a captain in the Continental Army. He had a family, he was 23 years old at the time. And the only reason we know his story is many, many years after the revolution in 1843, he encountered a guy by the name of Mellon Chamberlain. Chamberlain was a young school teacher at the time in 1843 collecting stories from the last remaining Minutemen in the Revolution. And if you think about it, at that point, they were in their late 80s and early 90s. Now, look, I know a lot of people that age now, they're still sharp. In that time in 1843, that was like Methuselah old, right? It was pretty rare. And so to come across a guy like this, he knew if he didn't preserve their story, those stories would be lost. So he's going around collecting the oral histories of these guys, and he comes across Preston in North Carolina, and he asks him a series of questions about the American Revolution. He asked them, Captain Preston, when you went out to fight those redcoats that day, what is it that you meant? Had you been reading the great revolutionaries like Burke and like Payne on Common Sense? And he said, Preston says, those men you speak of, I never heard those names. We read the Bible, Psalms and the Almanac, but those men, I know not of them. That's pretty shocking because I, I heard they were reading all the great revolutionaries. He asks him, what about the Stamp Act? Were you frustrated by having to buy the stamps and put them on your documents? It was a form of tax. It was punitive. And he said, stamps? Well, Governor Bernard locked them in the armory. I'm sure I never bought one. I mean, I don't know. That's what I learned in school, right? They were furious about the Stamp Act. He asks him about the taxes on tea. He says, you were upset about the high taxes on tea. And he said, tea? I was a farmer and we never drank any tea. We drank coffee. The boys dumped it in the harbor and that was that. I don't know about you guys, that's everything I know about the American Revolution. <laughs> that's what I learned. And so I think Chamberlain's frustrated and he asks him this question. He says, well, maybe it was just the heavy hand of British tyranny and you were just sick of British tyranny. And he says, tyranny never felt a whit of it. So he doesn't feel tyranny. He doesn't, never bought a stamp, didn't drink tea, wasn't reading the great revolutionaries. Everything I know about the American Revolution is right there. That's the whole thing. And he asks him, well, why did you go fight that day? And Preston says something that I think is the most eloquent, succinct summary of the political philosophy of the American Revolution said then, or even to this day. And he said this. He said, son, when we went out to face them redcoats, we meant only one thing. We had always governed ourselves. And we always intended to. Them redcoats, they intended that we shouldn't. That's the whole thing. 
That's the idea of self-governance. It's uniquely American. That does not exist in the psyche of any other country, this idea that we are a self-governing people. It's a recognition that comes from God. We are endowed with certain unalienable rights from our Creator, right? Free will, that's where we get free will. And, and we believed that in our bones at the time of the American Revolution. And it was enough that a guy like Levi Preston, who was not a soldier, he was just a family man, a farmer. He was willing to come out and put his life on the line for that concept. And I think that's extraordinary. And I think it's really, really important. And there's a reason I tell this story. I've told this story hundreds of times, maybe over a thousand times now. And I'll never stop telling it because I am Levi Preston. Because you are Levi Preston. Because we're just regular people. It's like you read about George Washington. I can't imagine being George Washington. The indispensable man, the character, the intellect, the fortitude. I can't imagine being Patrick Henry. That guy was so eloquent, such an amazing speaker. I can't imagine being Adams or Madison, the, the incredible brain power, the breadth of knowledge, the years of study, the books read. I can't put myself in their shoes. These guys are icons. We almost deify them. Levi Preston. He's just a guy that knew that he was supposed to govern himself. Just a regular guy. That's what I am. That's what all of us are, right? Maybe you can picture yourself as Washington. I can't. But I think all of us can picture ourselves as Levi Preston. And Levi Preston, he was willing to go out on the field of battle that day because he'd always governed himself and he always intended to. And I think that's where we're at in American history. Anybody feel like the federal government and even the state governments are impugning on our ability to govern ourselves? Yeah. You feel it because it's true. The founders would have never tolerated what we're tolerating right now. It's unbelievable. No income tax back then, and they were worried if we ever imposed an income tax, it might go as high as 1%. There's writings of the founders that are outraged by the idea that it might be 1% someday. Right? And they've done all this stuff to us that's so outrageous. So for me, I say we return to the Constitution. Go back to the Constitution. It gives us the power to do this, to take back our government from these people that have taken it away from us. Now, I get people that say to me all the time, this is a regular occurrence, Mark, but the thing is, if we would just follow the Constitution we have, then everything would be okay. And what makes you think that they're going to follow whatever you do if we don't follow the Constitution we have? And I will tell you that I always ask a question in response. My question is, which constitution are you talking about? That's the response I always get. Exactly. Everybody looks like, what does he mean by that? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what I mean. Victoria, can you bring that book up for me, honey? This is my helper, Victoria. Thank you, dear. So this is a pocket constitution. This one's bound. It's a little bit fancier than what most people carry. Anybody carry a pocket constitution? There are more people with pocket constitutions in America today than any time in American history. We should be encouraged by that. This contains that amazing, beautiful, eloquent, simple, easy to understand constitution with all the amendments. This particular version is exactly 30 pages long. It's an amazing document. So when we say they don't follow the constitution, are we referring to this one or the fundamental question? Are we referring to this one? Most of you probably don't recognize this one. Okay, this Constitution, 
says on the spine, I'm not making this up, the Constitution of the United States of America Centennial Edition. It weighs over 10 pounds. It's 2,738 pages as of this printing. This was printed in 2012. With supplements, it's now over 3,000 pages. This is the Constitution followed by the government of the United States of America today. This one, not this one. Okay, this contains every case ever issued by the United States Supreme Court telling us what this means. <laughs> Most people don't know this. I've taken this to congressmen. I've taken it to state legislators all over the country. I travel with this, not easy to travel with, but worthwhile traveling with, right? This is my workout when I'm on the road. I travel with this. You know what's in here? In there are cases like the Obamacare case that said a tax is a tax except for when it's not a tax. Uh, in here is the Obergefell marriage decision, somehow saying that after thousands of years of history, marriage is no longer between a man and a woman. In here, I think one of the most important and obscene cases is Roe versus Wade is in here. So when people say we don't follow the Constitution, they're wrong. We follow that one, not this one. So the fight is to get this one back to something like that one. I'm gonna tell you one of the most outrageous cases in the history of the Constitution, which most people don't really know about, and it's responsible largely for the size and scope of our federal government. In the 1930s, there are quotas being put on how much wheat farmers can grow. They're, they're not able to grow as much wheat as they can. They're actually federal government quotas that tell them that they can't grow as much wheat as they want. And there's a case called Wickard v. Filburn in which a farmer in Ohio grows wheat for his own consumption. And so it's not, he's not gonna sell it. He's not giving it away. It's just for his own consumption by his family on his own farm. The federal government gets wind of this and they impose fines on him because he grows more than he's allowed to grow according to the federal government. And he says, you can't impose fines on me. I'm growing wheat for my own family and you have no jurisdiction over my family. And they said, of course we do, according to the Interstate Commerce Clause. And he says, interstate commerce, are, what do you, I'm not selling anything. I'm certainly not selling anything across state lines. And they said, exactly. <laughs> That seems pretty weird. And they said, because you're not buying wheat, because you're growing it for your own consumption, you are thereby having an effect on interstate commerce. Which means, and this might sound crazy to you, that means that if you don't do something, you've now done something and the federal government can regulate you. Which is insane, right? I mean, just straight up crazy. And the Supreme Court said that. Right, so that's in there. And today, all these departments operate under Commerce Clause authority. The Department of Energy, the Department of Education, the Department of Commerce, the EPA, the USDA, the FDA, all these other alphabet soup agencies. Where is the authority in here for those agencies to exist? There is no authority for those agencies to exist in here. And I'm gonna give you the absolute proof of that from none other than Thomas Jefferson. If you want to get a really interesting look at American history and see what it was really like back in the founding days and then the constitutional era, uh, look, there's a great series of letters between Thomas Jefferson and one of his best friends, William Henry Lee. And there is a letter between the two of them where Henry Lee suggests 
that Jefferson ought to get money for the University of Virginia, which he's founding at the time as a proponent of public education. He ought to get federal money for UVA. And Jefferson says, well, I can't do that because that would be unconstitutional. The federal government has no authority to spend money on education. That would require a constitutional amendment. And you could look in here, there's only 27 amendments. I've never seen the, or the education amendment. Any of you guys ever seen that one? Doesn't exist. That's Commerce Clause authority. So part of what we're doing here is let's take the Commerce Clause and take it back to its original meaning and get back to the enumerated powers and reduce the size and the scope and the jurisdiction of the federal government. That's why I'm committed to doing what I'm doing. I'm committed for my parents who are still alive, for my kids, I have a son that just came out of the Marine Corps. He's now at Scalia Law at George Mason in Virginia. I have a daughter who is a senior at Hillsdale College. They're both in the fight. They're good, conservative, young people who are worried about the future of their country. I'll close with this, and then we're gonna take a bunch of questions. Um, one of the most poignant things I've ever seen in my entire life was watching my son take the oath of office. Do we have any veterans, folks in the service in here? Thank you guys for your service. You're gonna know exactly what I'm talking about. So my, my son did four years in the Marine Corps. And uh, I remember when he took his oath and it was pretty traumatic for our family when he did it because he literally got called away. He, he was on a list and he called me up and said, hey dad, I'm going to boot camp in an hour and a half. We literally got an hour and a half notice. And so he was gone. And this was just before Christmas, uh, five years ago. And so he was just gone. The sergeant picked him up, took him away, and we got to go down to Sacramento and watch him take his oath. And for those of you guys who have done it, I mean, it sounds like it's a big, serious thing. It was him in a tiny room with an officer giving him an oath, and, and it was over and done with. But something stuck out to me when he took that oath. And he swore an oath, and I'd never paid attention to this before that moment, but he swore an oath to defend the Constitution, not the federal government, not the president, not the government, not the flag, not the Marine Corps, to defend the Constitution with his life against all enemies foreign, there's a US Navy guy there, against all enemies foreign and domestic, and that's a lifetime oath, by the way. Every guy I've ever talked to in the military says, that's for life, that's not just for right now. And so he, when he swore that oath, I remember sitting there watching him and thinking, if he's willing to do that, if he's willing to sign that ultimate on the dotted line, uh, he'll give it all, the least I can do is this. And so my commitment to him and my commitment to you and to the country is that I'll never quit. I sign my own oath between me and him, and that is that I will never quit. I will fight for this republic until there is no more republic to fight for. So I'm gonna close with that and open it for questions. Thank you guys for being here. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.